All right. Let's get rolling. I promise I'm not going to talk too long, but today is going to be a little bit different. Um, just some things that the Lord's put in my heart, some things that have been going on. I want to, it's tying in to uh, what we've been teaching about, but it's also going just a step further because I, I'm connected with a number of pastors around the country, and I have conversations with people that are going, things that are happening, and it's always interesting to me that as I'm talking to these people that, you know, we're, we're how the Holy Spirit works. We're kind of tied in uh, going the same way. And it was interesting being at this conference. For those of you who don't know, this was a conference at the school that I went to, Raymond down in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, um, very well known for many, many years and stuff like that. And literally what he said this week, the guy, Kenneth Hagin, that was teaching, was stuff that I have been saying for the last five plus years, which was good. Because sometimes I just think, man, Chris, you're just stubborn. You put your heels in the sand, and you just don't move. And there's truth to that. And ask my wife. She'll tell you. But the thing was, it's like, okay, you know, am I being stubborn for stubborn's sake? Or are we seeing a trend that is not right? Are we seeing things happening and a movement inside of the church today in the body of Christ as a whole that is not good? And most people would answer that question, yes. But he's getting into the minute details of it, of what's happening and why it's happening, and what's going on. And this all ties back into what we've been talking about. So let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I want to say this. Now, reading that verse does not make you a new creation. Do you know that reading your Bible does not make you a new creation? Do you realize that going to church does not make you a new creation? Do you realize that maybe taking communion doesn't make you a new, uh, new creation? None of those things, even baptism, does not make you a new creation. These are all things that we do as a result of this new creation. Now, I know that seems pretty simple, but we have to draw a baseline somewhere and get people to understand that calling yourself a Christian is no different than calling yourself a car or an orangutan or a Dorito. Because when you've eliminated the meaning behind something or twisted it in some way to fit a narrative that you want does not make something so. As an example, okay, if you study politics at all, and please don't, it's mine, it's a pain. But when you want to know how something was meant when it was drafted, do you know how you do that? You go back and you read the documents pertaining to that and the debates that went on so you can understand exactly what they meant by what they said. It's not that complicated. We just don't like to do it. And so in this, when you have these uh, bills that are passed or these amendments and all of these other things, later on the use of the word changes. And so therefore now we say, well, no, because of this, this is what it means. Well, that's not what it meant then. It's not the same thing. And so we have to understand something that when Jesus said that if you're in Christ, which means you probably aren't, but if you are, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That means that there is no more guesswork. This is what you are. Who said that? Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Wrote this down. So are you going to argue with him? We do. We do it all the time. Or... We don't follow the pattern of which they laid out how you become this. We say, well, I'm a Christian. I went to church. I believe in God. 
Let's go on. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is an enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what do we learn here? That if you're in the flesh, what can you do? Not please God. That's what you can do. You cannot please God in the flesh. When it talks about the carnal mind, one of the things that we've, we've addressed is the fact that this isn't necessarily talking about a moral issue. This is talking about, are you thinking carnally or in the flesh or of the world, or are you thinking spiritually? You see, this is a big problem that we have here. Because much of the world today, especially believers in the church today, think carnally. They may think spiritually on some subjects, but they think carnally on others. As an example, depending on the type of church you grew up in, how you become this new creation has a whole different metric. Because there are churches where they'll put a list of dues. If you do this, if you go through confirmation, if you've been baptized, if you've taken communion, if you give, if you do X, Y, Z, then you're in. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I've done everything. You receive. So that's one way. Or you get another sect that says, well, if you're a Christian, you will do all these things as a result of that. And if you miss any of them, you're on a one-way ticket to hell. That's not what Jesus said either. And then you got a big sect of them today. It says that Jesus loves everybody just the way you are. God made you that way. Therefore, be who you are. That's not what he said either. You see, we've turned Jesus into this, this, this very passive and peace-loving flower child. Because they talk about the difference in the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Why was the God of the Old Testament so angry? Well, he wasn't. He was very merciful. You just got a long span of time that's being covered. So you're watching his blessings and his judgments both come with him. Then you get Jesus, and it's in, encompassing a very short time frame. And guess what? Was he peaceful? Sort of. I mean, in a sense, like, he didn't, you know, turn on the smiter and get anybody at that point in time. But he definitely brought some judgment. Flipping tables, making whips, right? I had a pastor friend of mine years ago who said, it's a good thing God doesn't give you the keys of the smiter. I'm like, there'd be a lot less stupidity in this world if he would. But we look at this and we're like, well, what's going on? Well, just wait. You'll see the judgmental God is soon, uh, again real, here, real soon. Real soon. You see, to be carnally minded means we're thinking not like God has created us to think. And to be spiritually minded is our thought life, our belief system is in line with what God has said. Therefore, as a result of that, if you're thinking in line with what God has said, the moral stuff goes with it. You guys following me on that? It's not one or the other. They both go with it. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some for who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, you've got to understand something. When Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, most of it is in re a result of something stupid that they are doing, and he's bringing correction. In the first letter, where there's actually four, but the first one that we have, he said, you ought to be on meat, but I got to give you milk because you're dumb. That's, his, that's my translation. You're doing dumb things. So here he's sitting like, I'm going to be bold towards you, but not like you think because it's not about the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God. So 
If we are a new creation in Christ and we are spiritually minded, therefore we should know that the weapons that we use in a warfare that we are in, that warfare is implied. But they're not carnal how you think. They are mighty in God, which is all you need. You don't need anything else. They're not mighty in you or your ability to act on them. They are mighty in God. In other words, that authority is coming with it. That ranking is coming with it. And what do they do? They pull down strongholds. They cast down argument. And any other high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. Who he is. What he's done. How you worship him. Who your enemy is. We've talked about all of those types of things. Anything that comes against the knowledge of God is cast down through a spiritual weapon, not a carnal weapon. And what do you do? You bring every thought into captivity the obedience of Christ. So you can see how these things are all interconnected. But the last one is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. It says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I told you that word wiles in the Greek is the word methodos. It's the methods of which he attacks. He comes in there individually, first of all, and it's like he throws a rock. And it's at your mind. He's coming after your mind. And he throws that rock time and time again. That's what the Greek implies here. Until he finally breaks through. And later on, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Why a helmet? Why salvation? It could be the fact that once you understand what salvation has done for you and who you are in Christ, and you are the righteousness of God in Christ because of what Jesus has done, and Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, and you are his body, therefore you are there with him, and all authority was given to him, and therefore he has given it to you to act spiritually in this world, to carry out the mandate, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. When you realize what that means, you don't have any problems anymore. Your depression goes away, your anxiety goes away, your fear goes away. You're not fearful of things that are going on in this world. You're not fearful to talk to your neighbor because you know it's not your responsibility to get them saved. It's your responsibility to preach the gospel. You guys with me so far? Am I talking too fast? That's good because I don't slow down. You see, it's all of these things intertwined together. Imagine a church, if you will, the body of Christ, if they woke up and got this. We've seen it happen before. You know where we saw it? Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5. You see it all over the place in the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. We watched them go out and carry out the mandate that Jesus had given them. You see a group of people, individuals that were so on fire and on mission for what Jesus was doing that they were persecuted for their faith. And they counted it all joy. Jesus, we are so thankful that we're counted worthy to be persecuted for your name's sake. And they were commanded by the, the people in charge saying, you can still do your thing, but don't preach in that name anymore. So you know what they did? They did the right thing. They said, okay, well, we don't want to break the law. We will obey to the mandate that you have given us. Yeah, that's what they said. Were they quiet? Did they stop? Did they? No. They got louder. And what did they say? Thank you, Jesus, because we're doing what you told us to, and now we're worthy to be persecuted. That's not the way we feel today. Somebody unfriends you on Facebook, it ruins your week. Some of you don't have Facebook. There's like, I keep using Facebook. We'll probably have to move on to a new one here soon because I don't even know if anybody's on there anymore. But anyway, 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, be so, uh, sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, again, I don't want to go into all of this stuff, but we know the enemy's walking around. He's like a roaring lion. Why? Because he was dethroned by Jesus. He marched his powers into principalities in front of everybody. 
He is depowered. They have no authority, no power left. But they're looking for whom they may devour. Who can they devour? Any unbeliever. And any believer who willingly lets them. When you're attacked by the enemy and if his attacks work, it's your responsibility. You can still overcome it. It's your responsibility. How do you resist him? Steadfast in the faith. What does that mean? Steadfast means unmoving, unwavering, unchanging. In what? The faith. The faith is the trust in Jesus. What he said and what he did and what he promised. That's what faith means. You're putting your trust in him. So therefore, what he said, you can do. And what he promised, he will do. Fair enough? I mean, think about this. Imagine Peter. Okay? He's standing there at the cross. He gets a question, aren't you one of those followers? No, I'm not. Even curses. And then in Acts 2, what happens? There was a transformation that took place in this man. Because he came alive. Because the man whom I believed to be Messiah, I watched him die. I couldn't believe it. But I watched him die. And then these crazy women came up and said, we went to the tomb. He's alive. He didn't believe him. So he ran to look for himself. There's no way. Once that happened, Peter's transformation is complete. And then you see the empowering of the Holy Spirit fall upon him. And he stood up at the temple on the day of Pentecost, one of the the festivals which every able-bodied male Jew was required to come back to Jerusalem. So there's a large crowd there. And they're all listening to what's going on and say, this doesn't make any sense. These are Galileans. They are idiots. They don't know anything. How do they speak all these languages? And others are like, man, they tied one on last night. They, they are schnookered. And he stands up and like, this is not what you think. This is what Joel prophesied. And he preached in front of them. And 3,000 came to the Lord that day. I mean, powerful change. This is the man who walked into the temple and said, silver and gold, I don't have but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. That takes boldness. There's something that transformed. It was when it clicked. There was no doubt. He watched it happen. We have his testimony written down in Scripture. That's literally what the, the uh, Gospels are. If you read the book of Mark, it is the Acts of Peter. That's why all the dumb stuff he did, it just says an apostle, it doesn't name him. Because if you're paid for by Peter, you're writing this stuff down, just leave his name out. Let them figure it out. You see, he recognized what Jesus had said. Jesus said and did exactly what he said he was going to do. Hey, I'm going to die. It's cool. Coming back three days later. Uh, No, no, I will protect you. They will not get you. He says, get behind me, Satan. He probably didn't like that. And then Jesus did. Something transformed in him. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. One of the last words that Jesus gave to his apostles, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So when it says all authority, it means all authority. We know he is the name above every name. At that name, every knee will bow. There is not a principality, a power. There's nothing that is named or that was created that is above that name. All authority has been given to Jesus. We've talked about that. And if that's true, and if that authority does come and apply to us, then therefore, why do we have such a weak church today? Why is the church so pathetic? For years, years and years, and I'm talking centuries, if you go back and you study, and we did this actually, and you go back and you look 
in church history, you will see ebbs and flows, ups and downs of a movement of the Spirit of God, things that you would see in the book of Acts in every denomination. Do you know why they called them Quakers? Because as they were praying, they would quake. Shakers shook. You know why they call them Methodist? I don't either. That's what they call them. But John Wesley would write that in his meetings that they would stand up and they'd start to pray and people would just fall over. And they would pray for people and they'd get healed and they would talk about these, they would speak out these languages, just praying in tongues. I mean, this is all documented throughout church history. And then you get into the uh, 20th century here in the 1900s and you've got revivals that took place. You had the healing revivals that took place in the 40s and the 50s. And you know what happened at the end of that? Many of those men that were a part of that, and, and Kenneth Hagin was, was in that movement, but he told a lot of those guys, he said, if you don't get back to the word, you are going to dry up. And he had people that were told him that were named in those movements. And you go back and study this yourself. That said, as they were trying to carry it out, the movement had kind of ended. But you know who didn't want to let it go? The people. And there was this healing revival. I mean, documented miracles taking place all over the world, especially in the United States, at least the documentation part of it. And he says, people expect me to perform, so to speak. I have to keep doing this. See, that's the problem. And many churches will bow down to the expectations of what people have. They're carrying on this charismatic movement, even though that maybe the Spirit of God's not moving like it once did. He's moving differently. They were talking about, and I remember, I'll never forget this one, he, he was teaching one time, that he was saying something to the fact that he had been teaching at this place for four days, I think it was. Okay? Four days. And on the fifth day, as the... Karis Maxwell said the Holy Spirit fell and things were happening and one of the guys came up to Brother Hagin and he said man the Holy Spirit showed up today it was spectacular and he said do you think he wasn't here the first four days oh but not like this he's like you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes see that's the problem we miss out on the supernatural chasing the spectacular it's a problem and because of that, there are a lot of false movements that are going on out there because the sign wonders and miracles and stuff, God still moves. Holy Spirit is still alive and active and moving, and you see this stuff happen. But not everything that happens in the name of God is from God. That's why it says to test the spirits, to see from which they come. You see, there is deception in the church. Baptism without repentance is nothing but a public bath. You can write that down. I'm going to trademark that. But that's literally what it is. Who cares? If you were sprinkled at a child, there's no repentance. You may have been dunked as an adult. There's no, if there's no repentance attached to it, who cares? Do you realize that more than 60% of young people today that are raised up in the church will leave at adulthood? Why do you think that is? Part of it is is because they come and they don't have no idea why they come. They just, mom and dad make me. I come, I draw, I play games on the phone nowadays or whatever. We're not paying attention. We're not discipling our children that does start at home fyi it's not the church's responsibility but we play a part but they've got questions that aren't being answered because what do we tell them you just gotta believe just gotta believe how many of you guys were told that besides me am i the only one okay this means that the vast majority of teenagers and young people that attend youth group today will abandon it abandon the church as adults you guys know what the average sermon length is in the United States today encompassing all churches. It's 37 minutes. Okay? 
Now that is taking in, even like Roman Catholics, that's 11 to 14 minutes. And a lot of your Methodists and sometimes Lutheran are the same way. And then you get into the old school Baptist or the old school Pentecostals, which are four to five hours. Right? There's a little, a little bit of a dichotomy there. So the average length is 37 minutes. And what's happening in the movement today inside of the church is we are going to what people feel. There, there are studies out there. Where are people comfortable with? Have you noticed that worship has now taken on a whole life of its own? It's no longer getting up and singing some songs and you're pouring out your... I mean, it is intense what's going on. I mean, you feel like you're at a concert. And I don't hate any of that stuff. I, I mean, I'm not down on this. I love lights and sound and fog machines. and They're all cool. All right? I think they're... I used to set them up. I love them. They're fun. But we've turned it into this thing. And that is the main portion of the service. And we give li very little time to the teaching of the Word. And we wonder why people are struggling spiritually why we have an identity crisis inside of the church because it takes a lot to properly exegete the scriptures to use proper hermeneutics to go through and be able to teach this stuff and so if it's all about feelings and it's all about you you guys have heard these sermons that discover your destiny find your purpose discover the will of God in your life you look at these sermon series and titles that are going on out there, and it's all about you and how your life can be better now. And it's not about God and what God has commanded you to do. It's for you to find your purpose. I just, this is an example. And this bothers me, but these are friends of mine, okay? They're in the process of planning a church. It's been a two-year process. They've been working through all the stuff. And God gave them the name of the church. You know what the name was? Grow Church. I mean, whatever. So there is a process now where they had left the church that they were at and they the stuff set up. And here's the thing. Turns out, Grow Church is trademarked. So they can't use it. Did God not know that? Does he not check with the attorneys to find out if these trademarks are set up? So now they've changed the name to Limitless Church. We're coming up with all sorts of crazy names. But they want to pull off the limits that's holding you back from fulfilling your destiny in life. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like a TED Talk. A Tony Robbins meeting for some of you older folks. For some of you younger folks, Tony Robbins was like the bee's knees back in the day. I don't even know if he's still around anymore. He probably is. And we wonder why we have problems. Let me read this to you, okay? I get this stuff all the time, okay? I'm going to read for a little bit. Bear with me. But if you go out and you Google this stuff, and I get emails, and I get phone calls and stuff, and it's about growing your church. You know, there's a, there's a program that you can uh, double your church in 24 months. Just super. Quadruple it in 48 months. Math is easy that way, right? Okay? I had a friend of mine. He'd planted a church, started with three people. And he went to one of these conferences. And he said, show of hands, how many of you guys have doubled your church in the last three months? He raised his hand. He's like, I got six coming now. We're killing it. Anyway. And it talks about the steady decline in church attendance. Now, this was sent to me. I don't even know who this is, okay? So I'm not, 
I'm not trying to mock him, but I want you guys to see what's going on out there. It says that there is already a steady decline in the church attendance spanning over the last two decades in the pandemic has really illustrated a need for change in the faith community. I would agree with that statement, just not in the way that they're going about it. As of 2019, half of Americans indicated that they were part of a church, which is down from 70% 20 years prior. It was down 70%. Oh, 70% said they were part of a church 20 years prior. Okay? Part of it is the decline in religion as those who are religious are less likely to belong to a church. Discover how your church can defy these latest trends and keep reading for 15 tips on how to grow your church numerically. Okay, here we go. Number one, how to grow your church numerically. Ready for this? What would you guess? What's that? Who said that? Fog machine. I didn't make the list. That's a shame though. I have one. We can hook it up. What's the donuts? That was some? Oh, donuts, that's, we have some. We can always have more. Well, what are you waiting on? Today's your day, assuming that the kids didn't eat them all. It says to brand it. Every great brand has its own distinctive look and feel, and a church shouldn't be any different. You want people to feel something when they see your brand. So the first thing they sh- you should do is create a logo. You want your church to feel inclusive, and inviting a logo with outstretched arms would be a good place to start. Make sure that the name of your church is big and bold in the logo. In 2020... Uh, there were about 380,000 churches in the United States. Like it or not, people have options. They'll shop around for what fits them and their spiritual needs. So make sure yours stands out from the crowd. You don't have to be a graphic designer to come up with a big, bold, catchy logo. Websites like Canva, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's one of the most important first steps because you'll use this logo on your marketing, whether it's in print, online, TV, etc. Because we just read Matthew 28. Go and make disciples... And make sure you come up with a catchy logo. Yeah. Number two, market your church. Now that you've got the logo, send it in the world to work its magic. We live in an era, luckily, where church marketing doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg. Start with your existing congregation and work your way out. You're going to want your logo on everything. Offering envelope, letterheads, put your logo on t-shirts, sweatshirts. Parishioners will proudly wear them in public and become roaming advertisements. Make sure you have a readable sign with your logo on. It's outside of the church. The first thing that people see uh, when they pass by and first impressions are important with any kind of signs, including yard signs. Don't feel the need to put the word church if you're pressed for room. If people are interested in what's on the sign, they'll look it up. So, right. Let's go on. Increase your digital presence. Now that we've talked about the good old-fashioned print advertising, we've got the digital aspect. A lot of pastors, priests, and church staff are intimidated by the idea of digital marketing and promoting their church, and rightfully so. In a world of TikTok challenges and hashtags... How on earth does a place of worship make its mark? That's a fair statement because I don't understand any of that stuff that goes on out there. Like, why were we eating Tide Pods? Did, I, did we ever just settle that? I know, but I'm old. So bear with me. All right. And then there was one where they were licking ice cream in the stores. Like, that was weird. I mean, I get it because it all looks good and I don't want to buy it all. So, um, let's see. Anyway, uh, getting a website. That was part of it. Make your holiday services special. There are a lot of Chris Easters. We call them Christians, Christmas Easters. Uh, but, but, but I'm trying to just get to the, the highlights. Post on social media about holiday services in particular. It's a prime opportunity to entice them to start coming more and encourage them to be a regular part of your congregation. The sanctuary is beautifully decorated. Take a picture and post it. If you're having a live nativity scene or a passion play, tell people and market it. A lot of people choose the holidays to give back to their community. People want to volunteer, but they don't know what's needed most. A food drive, a clothing collection, something like that good way to go 
uh, welcome new parishioners every week. Of the 10 new people who come through your doors of your church, that's mean only one of them will come back. So acknowledge them, even if it's just one. I don't know if they want you to, hey, stand up and wave to everybody. I'm sure that would go over well. Uh, whether you do it on social media or serve, make it a point to welcome your new parishioners regularly. I'm not going to read another. Oh, create 30-second videos for them. Wow, that would be interesting. Uh, host an event outside of the church. Sundays can be a strange time for newbies to mingle. So you want to give the congregants opportunity, even if it's just a Zoom or a Google Meet at first. A lot of people are intimidated by social events, so I lost my place here. Host it by demographic. Oh, college students, single parents. There we go. Create an email blast. Start a newsletter. Create inner church. I mean, not, not all of this stuff is terrible ideas. Get involved in the community. Offer digital ways to give back. Sponsor something local. Improve your virtual services. Due to the pandemic, many churches had to scramble to offer virtual service as virtual church offerings become the norm. Churches will need to improve the quality of their online worship. You know what's funny, though, is if you took out the word church and you put the word business in there, it would be the same advice. And what's interesting to me, and this is why I'm talking about this, is the purpose of marketing is to do what? To make you feel something and to draw you in. Will you show me, okay, and I'll give you just five seconds to look this up. Will you show me the verse where Jesus or any of his apostles said to go into all the world and make disciples by inviting them to church? Will you show me that? Because who is the commandment given to? It's given to the individual. And you see that happen in the book of Acts and other places. You'll see where, where uh, Paul shows up somewhere and he already found some disciples. So somebody had made it. He didn't know who it was, but he, somebody had made them. And he expands upon the teaching of what was going on there. All of these things have happened. And, and, and we, we question why, why we have this identity crisis in the church and why we have a powerless church today. And it, it's numerical as far as what, what the reasonings are. But it comes down to this. Is that we have allowed the carnal methods of the world to infiltrate the church body. And now it's about getting people to show up at any price necessary. Now, I'm not against numbers, don't get me wrong, but the thing is, is that how many people attend does not necessarily mean that you're doing things biblically. How much money you have does not mean you are doing things biblically. And those are the two metrics that most churches will use as success. Here lately, the big trend has been how many baptisms have you done in the last year? Again, do you know how they, they have these baptism services? Go and sign up if you'd like to be baptized. You know what they don't do? Talk about what baptism is, why you do it, and it's a result of something else. Now, not every church that does this stuff has any nefarious... I'm, I'm not trying to like, discount them. It's just we don't think about this because we get too caught up in, in the, the, the nonsense and the noise that's out there. I have a friend of mine that pastors a very large church, and um, they make the top 100 list every year of top growing churches, fastest growing, I don't remember what, what the list is. And that's a huge deal to him. Huge deal. And I'm like, who cares? How do they even know? Like, are you filling out a form and sending this in? I mean, it makes you wonder. And we look at what's going on, and, and it, it comes down to this, is that we have transformed the body of Christ into a marketing machine and we like little wins that when a new couple shows up or a new family or something, we feel like we've accomplished something. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? But how many this week, just think about this, 
has intentionally gone out and talked to somebody with the intention of preaching the gospel to them. Don't raise your hand. Because I would bet there aren't a lot of hands that would go up. Sometimes we stumble into it. Like somebody asks us a question, the opportunity is there. Those are great. But to be intentional. Now for years, I've been doing this for 20 years, most people are like, hey, I invited so-and-so to come to church. They're just not interested in coming. Okay. Did you talk to them about the gospel? No, no, no. That's why I want them to come to church. Okay, well, there's problem number one. I had a guy tell me one time, you know, he, he'd been invited to church multiple times, and, and finally I went over there to visit with him, and he's like, listen, he's like, I know I'm not living right, living the way I should, but I can admit that. I don't like church because it's just full of hypocrites. I said, don't worry, there's plenty of room for one more. Come on. We'll let you in. The thing is, is that we use all of these things, and we're like, why are we doing this? You see, the church has lost its power because the church has lost its way. And the church has lost its way because we have allowed it, because we have not stood on this firm foundation. We've allowed things to trickle in, and we've allowed the world to tell us how we are going to do things. We watched it happen two years ago. You guys need to close the church doors. There's a scary pandemic out there. Many churches did. They were doing what they felt was right, and that's fine. But it was really scary when the uh, New Testament was being written. And we wouldn't have it if they had stayed home and quarantined. We wouldn't have any of this stuff. You see, we wonder what's going on, and part of it is, is because we are in the last days. And this was a warning. We're going to read out of 2 Timothy. I'm almost done. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've addressed some of this before, but I want you guys to, to get an understanding of what's going on. Because I, too often I think we read stuff, and we don't really think about it like, this was something that was happening then, and this is something that's happening now. Like, you want to see judgmental Jesus, read Revelation. It's not going to be good. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, but know this. Now, who's he talking to? Paul is talking to Timothy. Okay? Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus became the largest church in that area of like 50,000 people, it was estimated. So, I mean, he had a large congregation. He was a very, very young man when he took over. But he was put there by Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 3, but know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. Now, stop. The last days. When did those start? The day Jesus left. That's when they started. You can read time and time again, they were talking about, did we miss it? Did we miss the rapture? Did something happen? What is going on here? So in the last days, perilous times will come. So he's telling Timothy this because it's going on right now. Men will be lovers of themselves. That also applies to women. So this was going on then, and it's going on now. Why are churches doing things to make people more comfortable? Because we love ourselves. Here's your test. Look at a group photo. What's the first thing you look for? It's always you. See how you look. How's your hair? Was there something hanging out of your nose? Is your fly down? Anything like that. The first thing you do. You see, we all love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Jesus said that he who loves his life will lose it. 
And then it goes on. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemer, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, and haughty. Now, I didn't underline all those because we talked about all those ad nauseum. You get it. They were going on then. They're going on now. Nothing has changed. It's still happening. But they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And from such people turn away. Now, let's stop here. He is talking to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of a church. And these people he's talking about are very likely people that are in his church. They love pleasure more than they love God. That is why that when it is uncomfortable, we won't stay. When it's uncomfortable, we won't go. When there's something else going on, we'll go do that. It's been like this for a long time. I know good, God-fearing people who pull their kids out of church in the summer and travel for baseball or soccer or whatever all summer long. I know adults who have done the same thing with their kids, and they wonder why their children don't worship God. And because what they showed them, why they didn't mean to show them this, but what you're implying here is that what you're doing is more important than the devotion that we have. You see, Jesus said, when you fast, don't do it like they. When you give, don't do it like they. Implying that you will fast and that you will give, and then when you pray, and all of that. These are things that we do. When Paul said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some of them do, it means that we gather together. There's a purpose for this. We don't just go because, but there is a purpose to this, of worshiping together, being built up together. At the time of the scriptures, they had nothing else do you guys realize it's easy to live in faith in America because if you go broke, government will pick you up. Food stamps and all that stuff, that wasn't God's plan. That's what we've done. So you can go out there and do anything and still live better than most of the world. So we have said to our children that this is more important, therefore we will just miss. And I know, and again, I had a, just a good friend of mine, but his kids would come back and visit. He's a faithful churchgoer. And when they get there, the kids called the shots. Hey, Dad, we want to go out on the boat this weekend. So he would go out on the boat with them. He's like, I've been trying to get my kids to worship God. I said, tell them you go out on the boat after church. They should come with you. Boat doesn't start. Keys are in my pocket. Whatever. He's like, oh, but they don't want to go. They never want to go. Like, who wants to get on a treadmill? Nobody wants to get on a treadmill. You get on a treadmill because it's good for you, I think. I don't know. That's what they tell me. But I mean, the thing is, it's like, there's a reason you, you do these things, and that when you cave to them, you're just simply saying, hey, whatever whim that you have, whatever's going on in your life, whatever it is, is more important than the spiritual discipline. That we, we're compromising. We wonder why. So what do you do with these people? They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. His transforming power. Well, God made you this way. He loves you this way just the way you are. No, that's not true. He loved you, therefore he died for you, and his transformational power can pull you out of that. You don't have to be this way. You're choosing that. Use your words correctly. There's a difference. So we have form of godliness. They're doing the right things, but they deny his power. You could say that that was the Pharisees. You could say that that was the Sadducees. They had a form of godliness, but they deny his power. From such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households, and they make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and John res uh, resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, 
but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to, to all as theirs also was. So what's he saying? They resist the truth. Why does truth matter? As you saw, and when we talked about this in Ephesians chapter 6, that that belt of truth is the center part for a reason, that every piece of that armor would lock into that belt. Without that belt, that armor was weak. You needed truth. There is objective truths that are out there. This is why we talk about, well, the Bible is true. You just got to believe it. That's great. And you may have been okay raised that way. But kids today are not. Young people have questions. And we can answer all of those questions if we'll just simply take the time to do so and do a little study of our own. But the bottom line is we hate truth, so we will deny the truth exists. That's the world we live in today. You can be whatever you want. They're corrupted minds. They're disapproved concerning the faith. They will progress no further. Their fall will be manifest. All of theirs was also. Talking about Jonas and Jambres and how they resisted Moses. You see, part of it is, and part of the problem is, is there's no longer a submission to authority. We don't like the word submit. We don't like the word submit to your husband, right? Because we think that means we just do whatever they say. And that's why I tell my wife, and she's not buying it, so it's probably not working for you either. But there's a spiritual like hierarchy that God has set up with the man being the head of the household, that he is responsible for that home, to pray for that family, to take care of them both physically and financially and all of that. It's the same inside of the church. There's a submission to authority that goes on there. It's not because I'm up here and you're down there. It's because this is how it, God has intended it to be. And I'm telling you, folks, I, and I remember growing up, there were things that were going on that my pastor shielded me from. And I'm thankful for it. I found out years later, but I had no idea. But things going on spiritually, and I was so grateful. I promise you that you are in the same boat. There are people in your life that would be considered a spiritual authority that have covered you over in prayer and taken care of things that you have no idea. And that's what leadership is, and that's why God has put that in there. That's why I don't understand why anybody would take this position as a job. It's got to be a calling. You need God's grace for it. It's not a career move. People do it all the time. Let's go on. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. Who's he talking to? Timothy. Whose doctrine? Paul's. You have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, my affliction, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Now stop. Paul, talking to Timothy, has carefully followed his doctrine, his manner of life, his purpose, his faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, affliction. What does that mean? That means Paul discipled Timothy. He watched him. He's followed what he's taught, how he lived his life, the purpose of which he did, the faith that he held, the long-suffering, which means patience, even to stupidity, his love, his perseverance, the persecutions, and the afflictions. In other words, it wasn't all sunshine and lollipops. It was rough, and he still followed them. You, you were there with what happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and Elystra. What happened there? He was stoned to death. You watched all of it. You watched what persecutions I endured. And you watched how the Lord delivered me out of all of them. That doesn't happen if Paul sets up a weekly discipleship class of which you come in and you learn what I'm teaching today. That only happens when Timothy follows Paul around as an active part of his life. That, my friends, is discipleship. And we don't do it anymore. 
Every person who is a believer should be being discipled by somebody and be discipling somebody else. But we don't do it anymore. What do you do? You call me. And I am happy to help, but that's not what I'm here to do. I will do anything for anybody in any way that I can. I've gotten calls from people in this community where I've had to intervene in somebody getting ready to commit suicide. And I am happy to be there. But that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I'm here to teach you, to correct you, to rebuke you, to bring reproach when necessary, and to build you up, to teach you how to rightly divide the Word of God, to teach you how to stand and pray for people so that you can go and do the same thing. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The ministry does not stay here. It starts here. Once you're equipped, it's time to go out. That is why Jesus told the apostles, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you're equipped with power from on high. Because we need that. He didn't say go. He didn't send them out there unarmed, unprepared, unskilled. He told them to wait. When they got it, then they went. That's what we do. Verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let's stop for a second. Show of hands, who desires to live godly? That means you will suffer persecution. That doesn't mean that somebody doesn't like you. That's not what that's talking about. People are not going to like you no matter what. They hated Jesus, they will hate you. It's talking about persecution. Does that say that you might? It says you will. That means if you're doing it right, you're suffering persecution. I can tell you firsthand that I have suffered persecution through my life because of stands that I have taken that were biblical stands that I refused to compromise on. And some people just don't like it. And that's okay with me. There's a difference between me just rubbing somebody the wrong way with, my, with the way I say something. That's, that's totally different. Okay, That's on me. Because I am matter of fact sometimes and I have to apologize at times. But taking a stand for something that God has said, don't argue with me, argue with him. And good luck with that one. You should be facing the same thing. Verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You notice how I said imposters? What does that imply? They're pretending to be something they're not. And that is something that we have to be very careful with. And one of the things that was brought up at this conference, and it's something I've been saying for years, is there's a term in the scriptures called familiar spirits. You have to be very careful with this. Because you may see a revival going on on TV, and it may be even in our area, something that you can go to. But just because somebody's claiming something does not mean that that is the Spirit of God that's moving. You have to be careful with that. We have to rightly divide. We have to test the spirits. These imposters are going to grow worse and worse. They're deceiving and being deceived. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now look at this again. Continue in the things which you have learned. What things did he learn and from whom? He learned all the stuff, his doctrine, his manner of life, his purpose, his faith, his long-suffering, his love, perseverance, all of that stuff from Paul. He was discipled by Paul. Continue in those things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned. In other words, Paul, pretty good guy to learn from. From childhood, you have known the scriptures, which what's he referencing here? Very likely the Old Testament. Now, there, are, I'll show you guys some stuff in the foundations class that will show you the New Testament as part of that, but that doesn't matter for right now. Learn from childhood the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation. 
That means you could read the Old Testament and discover salvation. Isn't that something? We don't teach that today, do we? Always the New Testament. Always read the love chapter. Always read that stuff. We don't read the old. How do you get salvation? Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So how are you that new creation? Again, we're not taught that today. Every church, you just got to believe that's all it is. We talk about repentance simply turning. Turn away. That's all it is. It's not all it is. Yes, you turn. And then you never do it again. You're putting your faith and hope in Christ. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm not spending a lot of time there, but I don't know about you, but I want to be complete and thoroughly equipped. And I have only way to do that is through scripture. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. So I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is his charge to Timothy, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. I thought Jesus didn't judge. Man. It says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Do you guys realize in the era that we live today, people hate teaching? They don't want to hear the word taught. They don't want to hear it expounded upon and exegeted. They don't want to hear verse by verse teaching. What do they want? They want an inspirational message that will bring you to your destiny. Why do we hate teaching? Because we're undisciplined. For the time will come, verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That mandate could be to every one of us to fulfill our ministry. What is our ministry? We bloom where we're planted and we preach Christ every single day. It says they're going to heap up for themselves teachers. They'll turn their ears away because they don't like the truth. They'll turn aside to fables. We see that. Did you know there are atheist churches? I don't even know how that works. But there are atheist churches out there. Again, I don't understand. What I'm talking about here, guys, is if we wonder what's going on, it's because the church has bought in to the carnal methods. And we are part of that. When I say we, I'm, I'm talking about right here. Because we want the same stuff. Although we may not call it the same. We want stuff that feels good. We want stuff that excites us. We want stuff that moves us. And we can have goosebumps and feelings. And we want to see the Spirit of God move. And the thing is, is we discount how the Spirit of God is moving. There are ebbs and flows of how the Spirit of God moves, and some of it is more spectacular than others, but He's always moving. But we discount that because it's not what we want. It's not what we expect. It's like it needs to be something bigger and greater and and grandiose. Not necessarily. We've got to get back to the basics of of, of the truth of the gospel. The gospel has been, forgive the term, bastardized by the church today. And we have turned it into something else because we do not want to offend people because offended people won't come back. And I'm here to tell you, we're not attempting to fill these seats. There's not a church that I would go to where I would say the same thing. Your goal is not to fill these seats. Your goal is to make disciples. When you're making disciples, what happens? Seats get filled. You don't try to fulfill the fruits of the Spirit. They happen as a result of the change in who you are, and the fruit is just a a byproduct of that change. 
this is a big problem in the church today. Methods and things that we try to do. Carnal things. Again, we have to redefine the word carnal because what do we think of? We always think of moral issues. That's not what it's talking about. We try man-made metrics to try to get people to come because that'll make us feel good. You guys have a mandate from God, as do I and every other believer. We are to go into the world and make disciples. In order to do that, Jesus has given us everything we need. We have his word and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Everything we need has been given to us, but we refuse to take it. So this week, I'm going to challenge you to this. Number one, I want you to reflect upon this and start thinking about this and just, just cry out, Lord, where am I missing it? Because I promise you we all are. But secondly, what if we just for one week got intentional about that mandate? That I'm going to go talk to a person, whoever that is, with the intentions of preaching the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean kick down the door of their office and say, I'm here to get you saved today. All right? That's not what I'm talking about. That'd be hilarious, and if you do that, I want to hear about it. What I'm talking about is you're going to go and have a conversation with somebody with the intentions of doing it, and then you're going to see if that door is open today. That you can pivot that conversation to the gospel. Because what if we just for one week, we got intentional about doing that? One week, that's it. Think of one person. One week, one person. Give me another one. Let's do one, one, one. I don't know. That's it. One week, one person. I'm going with the intention. That means you may not present the gospel that day, but my intention is to do it. What would happen? Suddenly, things might begin to change. Okay? It's your challenge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and I just ask that you put somebody on each of our hearts. Somebody that we can go talk to. That maybe we haven't lived a perfect life around them, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't change the mandate. Maybe we don't have answers to every question that is out there, but you didn't tell us to go in all the world being the smartest people. You said to be faithful, to be a steward of our time and our resources. And so, Lord, I thank you that you will open up a door of opportunity this week for each and every one of us, that we will be devoted to you and what you've called us to do, Lord. We will not take this time for granted. We will not make excuses, but we will go and we will preach the gospel, Lord. So, Lord, I thank you again that you're putting somebody on each of our heart that we can go and visit with this week. I thank you that your spirit will be moving with us, that you've equipped us and empowered us for this very responsibility. And I thank you, Lord, that lives will be transformed as a result. We give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have a great week. See you soon. Don't forget foundations. If you